Let me again say good morning, and I'm glad you're here. We're in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. I'm calling it that it might be fulfilled, which is a phrase you'll hear over and over in the Gospel. And we come now today, chapter 5, we come now today to not only what may be the most famous passage in Matthew, but it may be one of the most famous, really, pieces of literature in civilization you have heard of, everybody's heard of. The Sermon on the Mount. We come now today to the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to preach from the topic, a sermon on the sermon. (laughs) A sermon on the sermon. Are you there in Matthew chapter 5? I mean, intimidating doesn't even begin to describe, right? What are we supposed to do with this, this block of teaching? It is the first of five blocks of teaching. They call them discourses in Matthew. There'll be five of them. This is the first one. It's Jesus having gathered his disciples. How do you approach this? I mean, a lot of people know about the Sermon on the Mount, um, but w- like, what are we supposed to do with it as, as the people of God? Uh, it's not as easy a question as you might think. Uh, there, are, there are probably two equal but opposite errors. There are some people who would say, uh, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, I've heard this, um, that uh, yeah, like, uh, I'm not really a religious person, right? I don't, these may be folks, I don't even necessarily believe in God, certainly not Christian, uh, but, but I love Jesus. Uh, love a lot of things he had to say, especially his ethical teaching, like the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That, the golden rule, it's literally in the Sermon on the Mount. As, as you start to read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll, you'll, you'll notice more things that are so deeply embedded in our culture's DNA, it'll just it'll strike you like, oh yeah, that's in there. Oh yeah, that's in there. And so yeah, people will say like, I'm not really a, a Christian, I don't even believe in God, but you know, I just, I, I'm so attracted to what Jesus said, and, and so yeah, I live, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. To which you would want to say to somebody who said that like, you live by the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah, love the teaching of Jesus. The only thing I could think to say would be, you've read it, right? <laughs> like, like, people who've read it would say, like, yeah, it, it, it's glorifying. I mean, I mean no, no question, it is glorious, this ethical teaching. Uh, but it's also, like, terrifying in its hard edge, isn't it? I mean, to say that you live fully the Sermon on the Mount? Some people take that, they, they, they realize, like, I mean, the stuff in there about, like, like cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, you, you guys know what, like, that stuff's in there. Some people take the ethical teaching, you know, uh, Jesus said, you, you know, you've heard it said in the law of Moses, but I, I say unto you, right? These Pharisees and Sadducees have taught you this, but I say unto you. He's teaching one with authority. Some people, with the pendulum swing so far, and there may be even Christians who, maybe deep down they think this, that some would say the Sermon on the Mount's not actually even meant to be followed. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, some people would say, is sort of, if you will, setting the bar so impossibly high. He's saying, he's saying like, 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 you thought this was the ethical standard. In fact, it's this. You said it, you, you thought it was don't murder. I say, if you even have anger in your heart, he's setting the bar so high that we're supposed to just look at the Sermon on the Mount and be like, well then, nobody can ever follow this. Uh, I need the grace of God. And we fall on our knees and get saved. And that's the only point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not actually to be lived. It's just supposed to drive us to our need for salvation. Now, that's probably better. I mean, we do need to be driven to our knees for salvation. But how can we say like the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be lived? I mean, he gave it as a block of teaching. It's discipleship 101. It's, it's what it means to follow the Jesus way. 
So it, 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 there are some Christians, this is less popular now, but some, they read the Sermon on the Mount and they go, well, this, this must be describing like a future kingdom. They would say, this is the millennial kingdom. When Jesus returns, then the Sermon on the Mount will be fulfilled and we'll be able to live it. I don't think that's true. It's for us. It's for followers of Jesus, learning as apprentices, as disciples of Jesus, how to live his life. So we've got we've to learn it. We've got to know it. And so, uh, uh, you, you know, there is a... Uh, there is a man in this church, I, I won't call him out because I think it would embarrass him uh, knowing him like I do, but I've heard several people say, uh, several men say, he's an elderly man, been walking with the Lord, huge smile on his face, always an encourager. I've heard people say, that's who I want to be like. And even if you don't know this guy, you can picture somebody like this. That, that's, that's goals, okay? That, that's who I want to be like. So filled with God's love and still so vibrant, even in an elderly age, so, so in love with God and always building up other people. That's what I want to be like. I heard this man that they're talking about. I heard him at a funeral. He was asked to say a few words at the funeral of a friend who died. I heard him say something that I've never forgotten. He said every morning he tries to read some portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he had done that with this buddy. They would talk about it with this friend who died. And I thought, you know, there's a connection there. <laughs> Here's a guy who when you look at you go, man, that, that, that guy, he sure, that is an attractive life. I, w- w- that is compelling to me. He knows the Lord. Is it a surprise then that he talked about how he spent time in, immersed in the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is tricky because you can get, it's one of those, it's easy to, to lose the forest for the trees. You get so hung up on one particular verse, you miss the overall message. So I thought, let's just do this. Let's do this. The Sermon on the Mount could be an entire sermon series. My sermon series is on Matthew, not just the Sermon on the Mount. So, so I'm not going to be able to touch on everything. But just for the next few weeks, let's do this. Uh, why, don't, why don't you read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety every day? If you read the Sermon on the Mount slowly, it'll take you about 15 minutes. So let's just agree to do that. Let, let's do that. For the, for the coming weeks... Uh, let's read it, and, and, and you can read it. It'll take about 15 minutes. Some of you use a Bible app or you have the, you know, where you can press play, and you can have it read to you, often in a delightful British accent, right? Whatever you want, but have that read to you. Let, let's just do that. Let, let's do that. If you say, well, I don't know if I can if I'll get it every day. Then the days you get it, you're going to be blessed. But let's do that. Let's immerse ourselves because what that will do is prevent us from so honing in on one part that we miss the whole and I want us to be immersed in it I want us to live it the Sermon on the Mount every day for the next few weeks let's call it three weeks okay I'm I'm giving myself three weeks to cover the Sermon on the Mount so call it 12 (laughs) but we'll try I'll try okay uh, but let's, let's try that. Okay, so there, there, there's a challenge. Let's just, let, starting tomorrow, let, let's get into it. Sermon on the Mount, it'll take you 15 minutes. Some of you are going, let me see if I understand this. Uh, Jesus preached his sermon in 15 minutes. He was Jesus, okay, I can't. All right, I know what you're thinking. Uh, just uh, by, you know, maybe this will be helpful to you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a, a really thick book called Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. It's re- really good. It was based on a series of talks. And he gave some reasons why we should study it and try to live it out. And I thought these were compelling. You don't have to write these down. We'll just kind of go through them quick. But I thought, this is compelling. We need to know this. We need to not only, the Sermon on the Mount is not some ethical standard that we're supposed to behold, but not actually try to live out as believers. No, uh, Lloyd-Jones says this. Number one, the the reason, why why study it? Why, Why lean into it? Why read it every day? It takes 15 minutes. Why am I asking you to carve that out of your day? He says, the Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has made available this new kingdom life, an entirely 
countercultural way of living is available to you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As you enter into the kingdom, which you can only do through Jesus, you, have, you, you now have available to you this whole new countercultural kingdom life. He died so that we could live the Sermon on the Mount, which leads directly to the second reason why I study it. There is nothing like the Sermon on the Mount to humble us. He says it this way, nothing shows me the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit so much as the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, go back to where I began. This person who would say, oh yeah, I follow the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not a Christian. I'm not really a believer in God, but I follow the Sermon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Try it. Try to live out the commands on the Sermon on the Mount without having been born again, without the Holy Spirit graciously operating in your life. It will crush you to the ground. You cannot live the Sermon on the Mount, without the power of God living through you and living in you. Nothing will remind you of the need of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus, at one point in his ministry, said this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing reminds us of that. Nothing shows us our desperate need for that so much as the Sermon on the Mount. Why study it? He writes, third, the more we live and try to practice this Sermon on the Mount, the more we shall experience blessing. Where do, where, do you, where do you go to get blessing right now? Where can you get a spiritual blessing? I don't know if you're following what's happening. Uh, we, we prayed this morning. Our deacons prayed for uh, continued uh, fires of revival happening in Kentucky on that college campus up there in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury. Uh, the revival happening. Let me ask you, what, what would it look like? Revival. Where do you go to blessing? Do you have to travel to Kentucky to get that kind of blessing? What Lloyd-Jones says, and I agree with him, you want blessing in your life? It's not an experience you have to go hunt after. You go straight to the Sermon on the Mount. You begin living it out. You go straight to Jesus. Go to him. This is his follow me 101, discipleship 101. He's talking to his disciples. You want to walk under the blessing of God, walk under the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start by reading it every day for those 15 minutes to actually read through it in its entirety. But to live under it, the more we do, the more we shall experience blessing. Many of us are, are hunting. We're desperate. Even if we can't name it or articulate it in that way, we're desperate looking for that blessing. Here's where you'll find it. Go straight to Matthew 5, 6, 7 and read it. Live it. And then last, and I, I wouldn't have thought of this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think he makes a very compelling point. He, he says, the, the other reason, it is the best means of evangelism. Evangelism, leading others to Christ. He says, crusades are great, and all the things we do are great, and outreaches, and all that, and sharing our faith. That, that is all great, we need to do more of it, that's wonderful, that's great. He said, but the single most compelling means of evangelism. How people actually convert from darkness to light is when they see a true Christian living the Jesus way. That is the compelling means of evangelism. When somebody's actually living in the Jesus way, that's attractive. The, the, the more, it's funny, it's ironic. The, the church always feels pressure to like be more culturally relevant or hip. And the irony is, every time the church looks more like the world, the less attractive she becomes. But the more the church separates from the world and offers a real alternative. You know, it's easy to, to tear the culture down. You know, culture today and morals and values, and it's all going down the tubes, grumble, grumble. It's easy to curse the darkness. Here, light a candle. Look, here's an alternate this is truly countercultural. This is not just, uh, you know, the culture today. It's like, here's an alternate way to live. That is incredibly compelling and incredibly 
attractive to a world that desperately needs to hear some good news. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus, in his, one of his applications, he's going to look at his disciples and say, you're it. You're the means of evangelism. He's going to say, you are the salt of the earth. You remember this? You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It's just to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What's his point? How can salt lose saltiness? Sodium chloride is a really stable compound. Sodium chloride just doesn't wake up one day and suddenly not become sodium chloride. It loses its saltiness as more and more impurities begin to become a part of the salt. And as more and more impurities were tacked on, eventually you couldn't really taste the saltiness of the salt anymore not because it had been so diluted and so filled with all these impurities just trampled out. It's just road dust at that point. What's, his, what's Gia's point? Come apart. And, 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 you, and he says, he follows it with, you are the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a bucket, right? No, 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 no. The, the, the light needs to shine. So come apart from the world. It's okay to be weird. It's okay to be different. You don't have to be ashamed. You can illuminate. Shine. And shine bright. Don't just shine in a big flash and then we never hear from you again. Be light, not lightning. Shine. Well, once, uh, one last word of introduction, and it may, I, I hope it'll be the, the single most helpful key in interpreting. I do think, uh, last thing I'll say, for those who aren't familiar with the, with the Sermon on the Mount, I think some people, um, they need some sort of key that unlocks it. They, they're not real sure how to uh, uh, approach the Sermon on the Mount. I think once you get this, uh, uh, you'll see everything else in the, in the sermon a little more clearly. Uh, l- let me explain it this way. So I got to study abroad when I was in college, and I studied at German University, and so the the weekends and then big, big week-long trips, we would go and we would tool around Europe, and I was, culturally, I was a total Philistine, right? Like, youth is wasted on the young. You know, I had all these opportunities, like, where are we going this weekend? Another art museum, <laughs> right? So here I had all the cultures of Western civilization before me, and I was like, boring, you know? So one day, we're going to this art museum in Paris, and, uh, and, and they, were, they had a traveling exhibition there of <clears throat> the Impressionists. Wah, wah. And so we go in there, and I'm like, and they're like, now this is a Monet. And I'm like, okay, Monet. Like, okay, so it's a bridge. It's a woman with an umbrella. Big deal. They're all kind of blurry. Right? Like, this doesn't... <laughs> And so I'm standing there just completely like, you know, these great masterpieces. I'm like, what else? I don't get it. And this, so I'm, I'm like, when is this going to be over? A guy standing next to me, and I never would have thought this. He was a big dude. He was into sports. He was a jock. He's standing there, and he is transfixed by this Monet painting. And I was like, he's like, you don't see it, do you? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> he's like, Tom, let, let me just show you one thing. He's like, you see how it's, it's an impression of, of this snapshot that, that the painter's making. Yeah. He's like, do you, do you see how if one paint stroke were just a little too sharp in terms of contrast, the whole painting would be ruined? Or if one little paint stroke were not sharp enough in contrast, the whole painting would be ruined. And yet the master artist is able, think about it, thousands and thousands of paint strokes at the exact same perfect level of contrast to give the whole thing the impression that you can immediately behold. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I was like, that is. And suddenly I'm like telling other people, like, yo, did you see these monnets? <laughs> There's a degas. Like, there. I'm in. I'm all in. That was a great gift to me. The problem was never with the artwork. 
The problem was I didn't have a key by which to understand and appreciate what I was looking at. When he gave me that key, suddenly all these things came to life, and I was able to enjoy them. And, and, and at a depth, I was never able to do that. So, so let me give you the key. The key comes in verse 1, of course. Matthew gives you the key in the very first verse. Seeing the crowds, this is Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, he, he, he'd been preaching to the crowds, right? Uh, he'd already done all that. He'd done healing. He's walking around all through Matthew 4. He's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. So seeing all these crowds, he left them. He went up the mountain Side note, I think there's some uh, Old Testament illusion here. I, I, I believe that Matthew wants us to show, show us that Jesus is the true and better Moses who teaches with authority. Notice how Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive God's revelation in the law. Here Jesus comes, but he goes up the mountain, and he, it says, verse 2, opened his mouth and taught them. In other words, he speaks as one with authority. He didn't have to go and receive some revelation. He is the revelation. Anyway, he sat down. Look, look, look. Who came to him? His disciples came to him. Now, I hope what I'm about to tell you is just like when that, when that big fella told me about those impressionist paintings. Here, here's, how to, here's how to unlock and so you can see the Sermon on the Mount. He opened his mouth and taught them. He taught the disciples. Here's the key. You ready? Everything you're going to read, when you approach the Sermon on the Mount, here it is. The Sermon on the Mount is given for believers, for those who are already saved. You can't go to the Sermon on the Mount without the indwelling, without the power of the Holy Spirit. Unless something has happened to you, unless you've been converted, unless you've been rescued, the whole thing will crush you to the ground. It won't make any sense. The Sermon on the Mount is given for believers. It's for those who are saved. That's why, by the way, that's why Jesus starts the sermon where every other world religion sermon would have ended. He starts where everybody else ends. Follow me. Every other world religion basically works like this. There's blessing out here, guys. There's blessed. You want to be a blessed? You want to have a blessed life? You want to have the good life? You want to have nirvana? You want to achieve transcendence? You want to world peace? Whatever it is. You, you want the blessing? Here's how you get it. You ready? You follow this rule. You follow that rule. Do these things. Don't do these religious rituals. Do these religious rituals. And if you're good enough, and if you're moral enough, or if you meditate enough, or whatever it is, if you do all these things at the end of the sermon, ta-da, you too can achieve blessedness. Jesus reverses this whole thing. He starts with, because you've come to me, because you're saved. He's got the disciples. The disciples are already saved. They are followers of Jesus. They are literally disciples of Jesus. He says, because of that, right, here's who you are. I want you to do, I want you to live in a certain way. Do you understand? He's starting with blessed status. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called Sons of God, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he turns so personal and talks to him, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes, Beatitude is a, comes from a Latin word, just means blessed, the blessings. The Beatitudes, that's what we call them, the blessings, are not, these are not how to be saved. You can find that other places in the Bible. 
No, the Beatitudes are answering the question, who are the saved? Or better yet, you could put it, what are the marks and evidences of a work of grace in a human soul? What does it mean to be saved? They are not a means of grace. They are a state of grace. As you look through this, this is describing, by definition, those who are saved. It's like, uh, uh, it's not like, hey, do these things. Okay, no, 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 listen, go out there and go out there and be really poor in spirit. <laughs> and if you really achieve poverty of spirit, then you can be, but no. No, he's saying, you're saved. You're to be congratulated. Why? Be- because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why? You- you've shown poverty of spirit. Merciful, all these things. It- it's like in uh, Galatians when Paul describes the fruit of the spirit. He's not saying go out there and have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you have all these things, then you can be saved. He says the evidence you know you're saved is that suddenly in your life, and these Beatitudes are for all, you see love, joy, peace, patience. Same thing with the Beatitudes. They are to make all, they are to mark all Christians. Beatitudes describe every Christian. And they're not temperaments like some people, like it's not like, I don't know, it's like the fruit of the Spirit is supposed to grow fully orbed and symmetrically in your life. It's not like you're supposed to be like, well, I'm really good on love, but I'm terrible on patience. You know, or something like, like, like we, these are not temperaments. It's not like, well, some people are naturally meek, and, but they don't mourn. Other people are merciful, but they're not very pure in heart. No, this is what it describes the life of a believer. So these, again, I'll say it again. <laughs> these are, this, the Beatitudes don't answer how to be saved. They're describing who are the saved. What, what are the marks and evidences that someone's been saved. So I think Matthew would answer, if you asked him straight up, what's a Christian? What's a disciple? He would say, it's a meek, merciful, poor in spirit, pure in heart, mourning, hungry, persecuted peacemaker. Every time. That's what a Christian is. So Jesus says, because you are saved, here are eight fruits, and and let me describe them for you, and they come with blessings. So because I've saved you, live in this way. And by the way, that's foundational. You'll see that all throughout the New Testament. The New Testament, whether, whether you're reading through Ephesians or whatever, you'll see this pattern. The New Testament never says, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll experience your identity in Jesus Christ. The New Testament pattern is always, it's by grace you've been saved, now that you're saved, now that you're a child of God. Because of who you are, live in a certain way. The, uh, uh, if I, uh, you might say it this way, the imperatives always flow from the indicatives, Because of who you are in Christ, live in this ethical way. That's how the Sermon on the Mount works. The Beatitudes are are not commands to be followed. They are descriptions of a person who is in Christ. And now look at the fruit that that comes. Well, let's see if we can break these apart. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a foundational mark of a Christian. By definition, a Christian is someone who is poor in spirit. What does that mean? They have admitted before God their poverty of spirit. You might say it this way. They've admitted they are spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means. If you were to stand before God and, and you would say, you know, and, 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 and you, have, you have nothing to offer a holy God, why he should bring you into relationship with him. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. If you would say, no, I don't need rescuing. I don't need salvation. By definition, you're not being rescued. A follower of Jesus is someone who's been brought to the point, to borrow language from the 12-step program, they came to a place where we admitted we were powerless over our sin. See? Poor in spirit. To me, one of the best examples of this 
Uh, I am old enough that I have both been to live and in person, and I have seen many on television a Billy Graham crusade. Anybody seen these Billy Graham crusades? Billy Graham preaches the gospel. By the power of God, the Holy Spirit brings people to new life. It's incredible. And they start coming out of the stands. Come, you want to be saved? You want to receive this eternal life? They start coming out of the stands. And not just one or two. They come by the hundreds and sometimes by the thousands. And as they're coming, what is the hymn that almost every time they sang while those folks were coming? Do you know? You're saying it. Just as I am. Do you know the words? Just as I am. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. There may be no better explanation of poverty of spirit. Just as I am without one plea. A plea is that thing you always got in your back pocket to show why you should be admitted into heaven. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but deep down, I'm a pretty good guy, right, Lord? I've, I've amassed a pretty good record of righteousness. Hey, I was a preacher. You know, I suffered for you. I was a missionary. I did these things. The hymn says, just as I am without one plea. How dare you? What, what, what makes you think you can come to Christ? I got nothing. Not a single plea. I don't have a single plea. Well, then what, what makes you think you can come? Because that preacher said, the blood was spilled for me. You got anything else? Not really. Thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. Which is just old English for saying, because the blood was spilled, and because Jesus said I could come. That's all I got. And Jesus says, and that's all you need. In fact, anything else would probably keep you from receiving the grace of God, wouldn't it? But the simple faith and trust that the blood was spilled for me, and he invited me to come. I got nothing. I got nothing of my own merit in my hand. No price I bring, simply to the cross I cling, Rock of Ages says. It's good, good doctrine there. That's exactly right. Well, if you're too prideful to admit that you need the grace of God, you're not yet a Christian. I mean, if you're sitting here going, well, it sounds like these Christians, they're just God's welfare case. They're just a charity case. Now you got it. That's right. Well, I don't want to be anybody's welfare case. Then I'll pray for you because you can't yet become a Christian. Being a welfare case is probably a shame for some people because of their pride in other areas of life. Fine, but when it comes to the gospel, that's all there is. I'll be the first to tell you I'm his welfare case, a charity case of his grace. I have need, poverty of spirit. So, so watch this. Watch how the Beatitudes build. Poor in spirit Next, Christians have come to a place where they're sorry over their sin. They're not, they're not just convicted over sin. They realize, wait a minute, I have no claim on heaven. I, I can't do anything to earn salvation. And then they mourn over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is not so much those who mourn over the loss of a loved one or the trials of life, though God does offer comfort. It's talking about that godly sorrow that we've broken the commands of God. We've broken the heart of God. Remember the, the, the context. Jesus, John the Baptist came and he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. And then in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus started his ministry and he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Verbatim, the exact same message. And people did. They did. And, and they repented. It was not just that they discovered the evil of their sin. They mourned that they had committed it and they resolved to forsake it. And in that 
mourning. They were sorry over their sin. There was a, there was a repentance. So far, if you're a Christian, it, you may have been saved. You may have been walking with the Lord for years and years. So think back. But it makes sense. These things have happened in your life. You have, you have realized, you've come to a place where you've realized, wait a minute, I can't save myself. That's poverty of spirit, poor in spirit. You've mourned over your sin. You've been convicted over those sin. And then look at the next one. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see the progression. Meek means gentle and humble in heart. A Christian, first and foremost, is someone who is, the Holy Spirit's given an awareness of their need for God, for salvation. And that's good. But once the discovery of sin, then there's that mourning that we've committed the mourning. And what makes us meek? Meekness is really about an attitude. I know there's some confusion, but meekness is a humble and gentle spirit toward others because we have a true estimate of ourselves. A meek person is someone who's humble and gentle toward others because in the back of their mind, they can never get over the fact that God saved a wretch like them. Does that make sense? Meekness is a little hard. It's a little tough uh, in our um, you know, current cultural context because uh, some people say meekness means timidity or maybe weakness. It's not really it. It's how you treat others because you've, you've never forgotten how God has treated you. Uh, John Corzin, who's a, he's a pastor out in Oregon, he's got all these one-liners. He's got a million of these like one-liners, these quick definitions. They're always so easy to remember. I love his one on meek. He's like, hey, I can tell you how to define me, meek. It's very simple. If you want to, meekness doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean timidity. If you want to know what it means to be meek, it's right there in the English word meek. You just break it apart. A person who's meek, says, me? Ech. Meek. M-E-E-K. Me? Ech. There's nothing in me. Now, theologically, we could quibble, but it's a pretty, pretty good line, right? Meek. A person who, because they have a true estimate of their own state before God, they can relax a little in judging others. I was reading a commentary. This made me laugh. I don't know if it'll make anybody else laugh. I was reading commentary by a guy named John Stott. He died in 2011. He was 90 years old. Picture the most kindly, gentlemanly, I mean, British, like the tweed jacket, the whole thing. Probably one of the meek, brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, Bible scholar. Just so meek and always so kind. You never saw him with a crossword to anyone. So John Stott, uh, in, in his commentary on this, I mean, ironic, I'm, I'm sitting here reading this going, what is John Stott going to say about meekness? He's one of the meekest human beings that ever lived. So he's, he's riffing in this commentary about how, like, you know, it's a true view of yourself, and the man who's truly meek is amazed that God would love him, <coughs> and it makes you gentle <coughs> and humble and sense, sensitive in dealing with others. So he's riffing on this, and he talks about how, uh, it's easy, he says, for us to tell God we're, we're a sinner, right? I mean, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve any of this stuff. Uh, we just don't like it for other people to agree with us. <laughs> he says, yeah, I instinctively resent it. We all prefer to condemn ourselves rather than allow somebody else to condemn us. But all meekness is is saying, yeah, when other people treat me, I, I've already admitted before God. So here's the part that, and I'll just, here's what he wrote, and I quote, <laughs> I just didn't see this coming. Do you understand his point? Like, like, I can say that, but when other people say it about me, suddenly I'm, so he writes, for example, I am quite happy to call myself a sinner. It causes me no great problem. I can take it in my stride. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a sinner, and I want to punch him on the nose. <laughs> what? I don't know, maybe it's just so funny to me, but I'm like, if, when, if John Stott is willing to throw hands, like, this is a, this, this strikes me. 
His point is so well made. Meekness is, is, is treating others with humility and with kindness and with gentleness. It's evidence of the new birth. Someone who has been wrecked by the grace of God, someone who walks around their whole life like, I still can't get over the fact that he saved even me, is going to treat other people with a whole different type of humility than someone who walks around with a bunch of entitlement, right? If we say before God, God, I'm a lowly sinner. I don't deserve anything. I'm not entitled to anything. And we get up from our prayers and other people treat us like we're not entitled to anything and we're suddenly angry, we're not being meek. Now, one last uh, word about this, about meekness. I, I, I spent longer on this one than any of the others. And I know there are other Beatitudes. But, but, but I, I really am concerned that this meekness thing not be seen as weakness. There was a, been many years ago, I probably had a t-shirt that said this on. It was uh, uh, Charles Barkley had, uh, had gotten with Nike and they had had this series of t-shirts. And um, uh, I remember one, I'm, I'm not quoting it exactly, but it said something like, on the t-shirt, it said like, um, the meek, and it had Barclay's picture, and it said, the meek shall inherit the earth, but they'll never get a rebound. <laughs> and it's a pretty funny line. But uh, I actually, I, I, I disagree with that. I think that being meek doesn't mean you don't play hard. It doesn't mean a basketball player on the court doesn't fight hard for a rebound. Uh, it has to do with motivation. And, well, actually, right, right here in this very room, last fall, the FCA here, uh, 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 right here, uh, had a, uh, a prayer breakfast before the Iron Bowl. And the idea is this very evangelistic uh, thing. And they had two speakers, both who played NFL football, one who played at Alabama, one who played at Auburn, right? And they come and they, they give their testimony and share the gospel. And that, it's cool. It's like the Iron Bowl breakfast, you know. And uh, the player from Auburn who went on to play in the NFL, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't recall his name, but he, uh, he had this great uh, testimony about how he gets radically saved. He's an NFL linebacker. He's radically saved. And so he's like, well, poor in spirit. I can't save myself. Uh, mourning over sin. He was broken over his sin. And now he comes to blessed are those who are meek. He's like, when I got saved, so one Sunday I'm out there, you know, as an NFL linebacker. The very next Sunday, what am I supposed to do? Line up against Mr. Sanders. He's talking about uh, Barry Sanders, former all-pro running back. He says, what am I supposed to do? Like, he comes at me, and I just try to hold him up and be like, uh, listen, Mr. Sanders, a week ago I'd have tried to hit you like a freight train, but... I'm a Christian linebacker now, so here's the end zone. <laughs> He's like, no, that's ridiculous. He's like, I hit just as hard. I tried to play just as hard. No, no I, I was a meek NFL linebacker, and I tried to play just as hard as I could. What was different uh, was my motivation. Who was I playing for? What was I living for? And that, you won't so much see the difference on the field, but off the field at the press conference, it was a whole lot less swag and trash talk about me, and it was more about my teammates others, and ultimately, how to glorify God. Now listen, and if an NFL linebacker can be meek, then certainly it's not weakness, but rather a kind of humility in the way we treat others because we've never forgotten how God has treated us. Verse six, you see how these build. The next mark of someone who's been saved. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, if you're a Christian, this is who you are. You've thirsted, you've hungered for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You, you were poor in spirit. You acknowledge your complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. You mourn over the cause of that bankruptcy, namely our sins. You're meek and humble and gentle toward others because you think about your own spiritual poverty to God. And now, empty, you long to be filled with the good things of God. You hunger and thirst. Go back to that image, if you can picture it, at the Billy Graham crusade. As people are coming down from the stands, what are they hungry and thirsty for? They're not coming down to get more money. They're not hungry and thirsty for wealth. 
They're not hungering and thirsting for, for something the world can give. And they're not hungering and thirsting for their own righteousness. They've had enough of that. They're hungering and thirsting for something more. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, and I need what only you can give me. That's literally what happened when you got saved. That's who you are. And he says, blessed are you. You're poor in spirit. You're mourning. You're meek. You're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. You've acknowledged. uh, 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 Look at the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A mark, watch this, a mark of a follower of Jesus is that they show mercy to others. Why? Because they've received the same mercy from God. He's not saying, go out and be merciful. Then maybe, just maybe, you can earn some mercy from God. No, he's saying if you've been shown this kind of mercy, you're naturally going to be merciful. It is a fruit of what has happened in your life. He's going to say the same thing a chapter from now, uh, foreshadowing. I'm warning you now. He's going to say basically the same thing. When he teaches on the the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he's going to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he's going to follow it with, I can tell some of you, you know, he's, he's going to look out and some of his disciples are going to be scratching their heads because I, I know what you're thinking. He says, for, you know, uh, uh, if we don't forgive these people when they trespass against us, what, what kind of setup is that? God has a bunch of children who demand forgiveness for themselves but withhold it from other people? No way. No. No, a mark that you have received mercy is that you extend mercy to others. It's a fruit. I uh, explain it this way. <clears throat> good friend of mine. Yeah. C.S. Lewis. He writes it this way. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in someone else. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Because you're a child of God and you've received mercy, you now have a resource the lost world does not have. You can forgive the inexcusable. Now that right there will help your marriage. That right there will help your parenting. That right there will help your broken relationships. And if you come to me, the number one reason people won't forgive is they always try to point out, but what the person did was so wrong. What they did was wrong. How would you describe it? It was without excuse. Go further. It was inexcusable. So, so there it is. So technically, technically, something that's inexcusable is technically the only thing that can be forgiven. Because if it's excusable, just excuse it. What they did was inexcusable. Exactly. If they had an excuse, then if you let it go, you wouldn't be forgiving. You'd just be playing fair. If they have an excuse, they should be allowed, right? But when they do something that they have no excuse, congratulations, you've now entered the realm of forgiveness. And something that's inexcusable is technically the only thing that can be forgiven. Which is why when you go to God, you don't have to add a bunch of self-justification to why you sinned. Tell him you sinned. Tell him you knew it was sin when you did it. Tell him you deliberately ran headfirst into it in total rebellion against a holy God who did nothing but love you and you meant to do it. Now let's talk about forgiveness. To be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. 
To be merciful is to have compassion on those sinners the way God in Christ had compassion on us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And by the way, that's probably taken from Psalm 24. Uh, 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 who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into his presence? Those with clean hands and a pure heart who do not lift their souls to idol. Jesus is not pulling any of this out of thin air. But the meek shall inherit the earth is Psalm 37, 11. Before it was made famous in the Beatitudes, it's a famous psalm. It's talking about meekness and how you don't have to sweat or be anxious about evildoers in your life. For the meek shall inherit the earth. He's just... He, He's taking this stuff and talking about this is what it means to be saved. Now, wh why do I say this is a mark of someone who's saved? Pure in heart, uh, the opposite is, uh, pure in heart deals with transparency. The opposite is hypocrisy and lying. In other words, if somebody is just going through the motions, yeah, I'm a church member, you know, but I have no love for God. I have no desire to follow God. I'm just totally faking it and hope I don't get found out, but I have no desire to follow the things of God. I'm a hypocrite. I don't actually believe any of this stuff. I just come to church because, I don't know, it's the traditional thing to do, or my parents make me, or whatever. No, 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 no. No, someone who's saved knows they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're meek, they're, 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 they're merciful, and they're pure in heart means they're not lying about it. They really believe their sinfulness and that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. They're, they're pure in heart. They're not trying to trick anybody. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. According to this beatitude, every Christian is a peacemaker. And now you see how it all builds and makes sense. Look, if everybody's, if people aren't pure in heart, if they're hypocritical and lying to each other, it's going to be very hard to have peace. How can you have peace if everybody's lying to each other? How, how can you have peace? If people are meek and humble and merciful, you can have peace. If everybody's at each other's throats and prideful and arrogant, it's going to be very hard to have peace. Bring it all the way back to the foundational beatitude. If people are poor in spirit and realize I'm a sinner saved by grace, then and only then there's hope for true peace. It's the fruit. Finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he shifts from the third person. This last beatitude is kind of a double beatitude because he shifts to the second person. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The condition of being despised and rejected by a world that is not going to understand. Again, as we separate from the world, as salt and light, a world that has lost its mind. And when I say the world has lost its mind, I don't want anybody to think I'm using a slang phrase. They've lost their mind. That is literally what Romans 1 says. Their minds became futile and darkened in their thinking. The world has lost its mind. The, 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 the persecution, the, the, the anti-Christian hostility in every age. A Christian is to be a peacemaker and to expect opposition. We should not be surprised, let me say it this way, if anti-Christian hostility increases, we should be surprised if it doesn't. From the early disciples to modern examples like Dietrich Bonhoeffer to those today who are ministering in very dangerous and hostile environments to the gospel, suffering has been and will be a badge of true discipleship. Well, the Beatitudes paint this comprehensive portrait, and I hope now you, you have a little bit of a key to unlock this portrait of what a Christian is. You see them alone, acknowledging their spiritual poverty before God, mourning over it, meek and gentle in relationships, honest, thirsting, not after wealth, but for what only God can provide. 
the musician's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. And now we come now to this, this big fork. <laughs> it's, it's easy, let me see if I can explain. The, the, the application couldn't be simpler. It's, it's too diametrically, it, it's a fork in the road. It is easy, and you are tempted to see the Beatitudes as, to see them as part of the sermon. Uh, in other words, uh, we're used to sermons having a lot of good advice, right? Do this, don't do that. There's even been advice in this sermon. Read the Sermon on the Mount every day. There's a challenge, right? That's what I'm asking you to do. It's easy to look at the, the, the Beatitudes and go, okay, well, well, he's telling us, be poor in spirit, be merciful. Mm. No. The reason the Beatitudes come first is a way of saying, before you can live out any of these kingdom principles, before we can talk about what life is in the kingdom, you have, to have had, you have to have received something. You have to have been converted. That's what it's saying. So, 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 so there's two ways forward here, the fork in the road. If you're here this morning or you're watching this online and you hear all that and you look at this list, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart. You look at this list and you say, none of these reflect my life. I see none of this fruit and, and I don't even want it. I don't want anything like this. I don't want to, to be a peacemaker. I don't think that I'm poor in spirit. I don't ever want to be poor in spirit. I have a pretty good uh, account going with the man upstairs. If that's you, you are not saved. You need to be saved today. You need to come to him. You need to come just as you are without one plea, but that the Lamb of God, his blood was shed for you. And the only reason you can come is because he invites you. You need to be saved today. If you look at this list of Beatitudes and you say, I'm not saying if you look at it and you don't feel them perfectly. In fact, ironically, one of the marks of meekness is many of you who love the Lord so much, you look at this and you go, oh, I'm none of these things. I'm terrible. That's poverty. Of, that's actually might be a sign of, that you're poor in spirit, ironically. So the question is not, do you follow these things perfectly? I'm saying if you look at this, do, even if you'd say these aren't perfectly true of me, do you want them to be true? Do you long for them to be true? You say, yeah. I say, Okay. I'm talking to somebody, hear me clearly, I'm talking to somebody who looks at this list and they go, not only is this not me, I don't even, I don't even want an approximation of this. I want none of this in my life. I'm saying you, this sermon was given then, then for believers and so you, you need to be saved today. Your invitation goes, no need to go further. You need to be saved today. You need to receive new life. Only the Holy Spirit can give you that. You can't come to this sermon and try to earn your way to God. Jesus paid it all. So that's the first application. If you're not saved, be saved today. The other application is for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are believers. I want you to read this every day. I want you to get it in your heart. Because of, and, and here, uh, Tim Keller, I credit him. His outline when he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches three points. The glory of the Sermon on the Mount, the terror of the Sermon on the Mount, and the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. There is a hero in here. Who, who does this sound like? Come on. Who was, who was poor in spirit? Who, who mourned? Who was who, who meek and mild? And who was truly pure in heart? Isn't this a picture of the hero of the Sermon on the Mount? Isn't this a perfect picture of Jesus? Let the gospel good news. This is not good advice he's starting with in the Beatitudes. This is good news. This is who you are. And you need to hear it. Do you, do you know why? Look, look. I wish I could get this so deep in your heart. If you're a Christian, I wish this would go to the very core of who you are. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be comforted. You shall inherit the earth. You'll be satisfied. You'll receive mercy. You shall see God. You, you, 
You'll be called a child of God. You, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's who you are. That's, you say, I didn't deserve any of that. I know. I know. Me neither. So how are these beatitudes ours? You know. How are you as rich as a king? How is the kingdom of heaven yours? Because he became poor for us in our salvation. How are you going to be comforted? Because he mourned. He mourned at the tomb of Lazarus. He mourned over sin and he wept in that garden and on that cross. How are you going to be satisfied, you who hunger and thirst? Because on Calvary's cross, he cried out, I thirst. How are you going to receive mercy? You're going to receive mercy because Jesus received none. Not from Pilate, not from the crowds. No, you are the beneficiary. You receive mercy because he received none. Why are you going to see God? Because he was pure in heart. Why are you going to be called a child of God? Because he's the ultimate peacemaker. And on that Roman cross, he stretched out his arms and he died to make peace between you and God. These beatitudes speak of everyone who's been born again because first, yes, they're about us, but primarily and first, he's the hero of the Sermon on the Mount. It's about Jesus. And for every Christian, I want you to hear that. I want you to know that going in. I want that to be the key that unlocks. You can live out the Sermon on the Mount, all these ethical requirements in the power of the Holy Spirit to an ever-increasing degree because of who you are in Christ. There's a theological complexity here. I've tried to explain it best I can. Go back and, and watch it again if you have to you, to get this right, or else I'm afraid the rest will be uh, uh, futile because of who you are in Christ then and only then in the power of the Holy Spirit can we live in a Christ-like way. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would grant anyone who's here today who's not yet a believer that today would be the day of their salvation. Holy Spirit, would you use these, even these, these beatitudes that describe a Christian, would you use them to convict and bring to repentance anyone who would say that they don't have any, any desire of any of this stuff and that today would be that day. And for those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, to all believers, God, I pray that you would drive that good news of the gospel deep into us, that we would live out of that identity, knowing that's who we are, and you would allow us to be merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart, meek, mourning over sin. Grant us that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Not safe.